Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, my name is Ian Rowe, a, a resident fellow at American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, uh, part of the Leadership Network at AEI. And as you know, we, we run uh, The Invisible Man as a podcast to highlight the achievements of incredible men that you may not have heard of. And if you're ever interested in learning, watching all of our episodes, uh, please go to www.invisible.men. Uh, and today we've got a great guest, Rav Aurora. Uh, who you may not know, but is a 19-year-old phenom. He's a, he's an opinions writer. He's a researcher. He's a good guy, and we we are very pleased to have him as a guest today. Welcome, Raf. Hey, it's it's good to be here. All right, excellent, excellent. Yeah, Rav is actually a student. Uh, he's 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 his work has been published in the New York Post, uh, City Journal, uh, Colette. Uh, and he's a student. Uh, he's a student at the University of Fraser Valley, which is in a small town uh, right outside of Vancouver. Uh, but Rav, you've been having an impact here in the United States. So I'd love for folks to hear just some of the things that you've been writing about, but a little bit about your own uh, backstory and how you've come to be who you are. Yeah, so I grew up here in a small town uh, called uh, Chilliwack. I'm just a couple hours away from Vancouver, and uh, I've always been interested in writing and social issues. Um, and and so when I entered uh, high school, I started um, for whatever reason that I can't really um, identify at this point. But for whatever reason, I became interested in the topic of police brutality and race relations and racial disparities. And uh, and my teacher in in high school, my social justice teacher was a Thomas Sowell fan. And so he handed had, me a- Wait, you had a teacher, the, te the class was social justice? Yes, yeah, the class was social justice, but it was actually, it was actual social justice. It wasn't, it wasn't social injustice, which is what social justice means today. So it was a class where we were actually taught critical thinking and uh, the teacher presented both sides of, of all the issues that we looked at, including race relations. And my teacher was a Thomas Sowell fan. And so he handed me a copy of Discrimination and Disparities, uh, Thomas Sowell's second last book. And so I started reading that and it really opened my eyes. And, and I realized that there was just so much that I didn't know. And it was contrary to, to what I was hearing in mainstream journalism, media, popular culture. So I became interested in that. And then I started reading um, Coleman Hughes' writing in Quillette. And that was my first big introduction to this other side, this other way of, of thinking about race and policing and culture. And so I just became really inspired by Coleman and Thomas Sowell and started listening to people like Glenn Lowry. And then uh, fast forward to, to last summer, I, uh, you know, I thought that I could start writing about these issues on my own. So I wrote the big essay on, on white privilege and it was published in the New York Post and it kind of went viral and everybody was talking about it. And then since then, I've been consistently writing 
essays for the New York Post and the Globe and Mail, Colette, and other places. Right. So help, so help us understand, what, what, what did you write about white privilege? Yeah, so I, I wrote about, uh, well, I wrote about a number of things in that essay, and I, I really went deep into some of the data. And uh, the, the first uh, major point was just that, that white privilege is a, is a racial stereotype that has gone unchecked for, for whatever reason. Uh, normally, we would, we would consider racial stereotypes to be bad, right? Like if I say, um, you know, like black criminality as a stereotype about because there is disproportionate rates of crime in the black community, that's true, but we don't stereotype all black people as, as criminals who are prone to violence, right? That is wrong. That is a racial stereotype that exists in the U.S. and obviously racism still exists and racial stereotypes still are perpetuated. But we recognize that those are wrong about minorities. But when it comes to white people, there's, there's become this, this pervasive idea that white people um, at large just live privileged lifestyles and have some kind of unearned uh, advantage in society by virtue of their skin. Um, and in that essay, I looked at different ethnic groups showing that um, among measures of income, test scores, life expectancies, um, admissions into elite universities, um, it wasn't white people that were doing the best, which is what you would expect if white hmm. were a universally true um, fact about, about society. It's, it's more like, you know, Indian Americans and immigrants from Iran and, uh, and China and Nigeria, people from different ethnic backgrounds that come to places like the UK, like Canada, like the United States, and end up um, outperforming the, the native population because of the, the cultural norms and behavioral patterns that they have, which, uh, which you can talk more about uh, if you want. But isn't it so satisfying to just have a, have a, a theory that just simplifies everything? And just, you know, we don't, we don't have to deal with these nuances and these cultural behaviors that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. 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 People like the, the simplistic narrative about, about oppressor versus oppressed. Uh, white people are privileged, you know, minorities are oppressed, but it's, it's just a, it's a framework that again is based on a racial stereotype, which is just wrong on, on every level. But, but more importantly, like you can look at the empirics. Um, an easy one that I use is uh, median income statistics in the U S and uh, according to the latest data, which I discussed in my Quillette essay, um, Indian Americans in the U.S. are making almost twice as much as white Americans are. Um, and other groups that are uh, out-earning whites include uh, Chinese Americans, Iranian Americans, Koreans, and uh, Syrian Americans, and many other groups. Um, and part of that has to do with immigration, is that we have a selective immigration system. So we, we sort of get like the, the cream of the crop of, of various countries. We get, um, you know, the most kind of intelligent, hardworking people from Nigeria that come here. So there is that selection mechanism where we're picking the best of, of each country, so to speak, and, and they come yeah, here. But, but it's not genetic. It's, it's learned behaviors. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's, it's, learned, it's learned behaviors. So, so people use that as a point of reputation that, that these groups uh, that come in, that they that they're more educated, that they have 
uh, that, that they're the best in their society. So it's unfair to compare them to, to the native-born population. And that's true that immigration selection is a factor, but that's largely cultural, uh, educational, behavioral norms and, and patterns of, of Nigerian Americans and Indian Americans that come here that have strong, that have a strong work ethic and have high expectations for education and hard work and personal responsibility that leads to their success. And that, that undermines the whole idea that, that race is the main uh, determinant for success rather than culture, rather than behavior, which, which, is, the, which is naturally the, the major factor for why some groups, um, I would argue, um, outperform others. And obviously there is a discussion about history and socioeconomic variables and uh, various policy measures that have uh, impacted why some groups um, perform worse or better than others. But culture is still um, a fact that often goes um, unchecked and is downplayed in our mainstream discourse. Why do you think uh, such a high percentage of white Americans embrace uh, the philosophy, the ideals that we're talking about? Um, you mean like like wokeness about about systemic racism, that kind of thing? Correct. Yeah, I think um, yeah. There's a lot of factors at play. Um, a lot of it is just um, one that white Americans and, and white Canadians too, and and white um, just people in, in the UK and across Europe as well. There's this growing sense of um, we want to be allies. We want to help people of color and we want to to be anti-racist which is which is a good um uh, goal to have right we want to end racism and so it comes from a good place um but there's also this like social pressure to conform with whatever the dominant popular ideas are about white supremacy about systemic racism and and a lot of white people, they, so they, they want to help, they want to end racism. And in the mainstream, when they're looking for ways to be anti-racist, they're not, they're not hearing about Coleman Hughes in the mainstream. They're not hearing about Glenn Lowry or John McWhorter or you guys or a number of other people. They're hearing, you know, Robin DiAngelo, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, um, a number of other people. So, so they look for ways to be anti-racist and they go to their bookstore and it's, there's white fragility there. You know, Thomas Sowell isn't in my local bookstore, but right. Robin D'Angelo is. Um, and they, they turn on the news, they look at Instagram and there's, you know, viral clips of, um, you know, viral and uncontextualized clips of, of black men being, se seeming to be brutalized by cops, but it's not clear, but these clips go viral and then they're blown up on Instagram and Twitter. And so young people are, are seeing this and then naturally their response is, oh, there must be some kind of um, systemic uh, force that dehumanizes black people. And, and so then they pick, up, they pick up white fragility and how to be an anti-racist. And then, and then here we are. Now we have this rising um, kind of white wokeness, which is an, uh, kind of a behavioral adaptation to, um, to certain societal problems with, with racial differences. In terms of the indigenous people in Canada, do you think much about them as well within the context of kind of the philosophies and views you're developing? Um, to be frank, 
Um, usually not. Usually I'm focusing on the, the American stuff uh, because I just have an interest in, in policing and criminal justice. And, and largely, I think I focus more on the, on the American stuff because whatever happens in the U.S. is transports to here. So, so whatever cultural phenomenon is happening in entertainment and politics and culture, uh, such as the BLM you know, protests and, and the growing movement for racial justice. You know, so whatever happens in the U.S. just, just permeates you know, across borders and it becomes an international movement. So, so by focusing on what's happening in the U.S., I'm, I'm sort of like ahead of the game in terms of as a Canadian because those same things just a couple of weeks later or, or just right away, they, just, they happen here and there's protests here. And these same ideas then become pervasive in the, the college classroom, in, in, in schools, um, in my brother's school, in, um, in just popular culture. So, so yeah, so I focus on, on the American stuff because that's kind of the root of the, the rising woke phenomenon, so to speak. So you, you've mentioned your interest in policing a few times. Let's, let's dive in because it is an area that there's a lot of emotion, a lot of agitation and oftentimes there are these high profile events that occur. There are a bunch of assumptions. And then a couple of months later, as more details come out, it actually didn't turn out to be what it was thought to be at the beginning. But the reaction to the, the, reaction to the retraction doesn't mirror anything. So I just saw you know, Jacob Blake, who is a, a person who was shot um, seven times in Wisconsin earlier this summer, a lot of riots, this unarmed black man and it turned out he admitted himself he had a knife that he evidently had used in some way. Like so, so when you write about these things and 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 reveal these kind of truths, what reactions do you get? Because it seems like we get really um, animated, but then the facts come out and it tells a completely different story. Yeah, yeah. So there's the underlying problem of the the narrative. Right. So once you have, you know, human beings, we, we like to identify patterns and we like to make stories and we like to to find things and, and fit that within our, our, our patterns of thinking. And so when the pattern of thinking is is uh, oppressive white police officers uh, brutalizing black suspects, then anything that uh, matches that description, um, even kind of superficially or just kind of um, on the surface, then, then that's the narrative that, that gets perpetuated further and further. Um, and, and, and so that's what happened with, with Jacob Blake. It's, you know, the emotions were high after George Floyd, uh, which we can agree there were several problematic things with that. And then kneeling on somebody's neck for that long, I think we can all agree is not a good thing. It's a horrible thing. And that should be, should be prosecuted in the court and, and justice should be served. Um, but then when you have something like that, you can't just... You can't just apply that, what, what happened there to, to any encounter with a black suspect, which appears to be the case here with Jacob Blake. Um, you know, there were so many headlines in CNN um, and I believe USA Today and a number of other outlets saying that he was, he was unarmed and, and highlighting that, you know, black suspect shot seven times in the back by a white police officer, right? So, so for a lot of people that, that don't have time a lot of young people or a lot of older people who are busy with work, like they're going to see, you know, their Washington post headline, you know, black suspect 
uh, shot seven times in the back and that's all they take from it. And then all the nuance gets stripped away. But if you looked at the facts of the case, uh, which I did um, pretty thoroughly in my Quillette analysis in September, um, there were just so many other details that were, that were critical to that situation. Um, and details such as uh, he did have a knife. Um, it appeared that he had a knife on him. He was resisting arrest. He was wrestling with the cops. Um, the cops tried to use a taser on him. It didn't work. Um, he stole his, uh, uh, I can't remember if she was his ex-girlfriend or his present girlfriend, but he, he stole her, key, her car keys. And so th there was all these details that, that, um, that made the situation just so much more complex than what was being shown in the mainstream media. Um, yet the narrative was that he was brutalized by the cops. But fast forward to a few months uh, from there, um, here we are, and, and Jacob Blake has shown um, just exponentially more kind of honesty and transparency with what happened than, than CNN, than Washington Post. And he himself said that I wasn't thinking clearly in that situation. And, and I did a whole Twitter thread on this, on this yesterday, and it just shows how, how biases, how preconditioned narratives can, can uh, obscure the facts in these situations and hijack our ability to reason and uh, discern the facts as they are. I mean, just for our, just for our audience's benefit, what are some of the macro policing numbers that, that are, that people should be more fixated on versus the narrative? Yeah. Um, so first of all, there's this idea that many young people that I've talked to have, I'm sure many older people as well, that, um, that police shootings, um, fatal or not, are an exclusively black problem, that only black Americans are shot down uh, by cops. Um, but if you look at the numbers, it's more white people get killed by, by cops uh, than black people in the United States. Um, and then that alone, many people go like, oh, what, really? Like, I thought this was just uh, applied to, to black people. But th that's not the case. And, um, and that's uh, a product of population in part because uh, white people are about 60% uh, of the American population, whereas black Americans are about 12% of the population. So naturally, you would expect um, white Americans to, to be shot in higher numbers, um, assuming that they have um, a certain kind of crime rate. Um, you know, whereas Asian people, for example, um, aren't shot, shot down by, by cops in, in high numbers because they have very, very low rates of crime. Um, so, so white people are killed uh, in higher numbers, uh, in higher uh, absolute numbers. Um, but if you control for population, um, if you eliminate the variable of population and make it just equal uh, it, um, on that metric, then it is true that that Black Americans are more likely to be killed by by police. Um, some studies show 2.5 times more likely to be killed by police, um, and that's a statistic that gets widely distributed on Instagram and Twitter, and people just take that like, oh, that's you know, proof. Yeah, that's proof, and and to an extent, it, it, it I understand the the moral fervor, the moral outrage there, like why would, why would, you know, two groups of, of human beings, why would one group be 2.5 times more likely to be killed by cops, right? It just, it's salient and it evokes certain kind of uh, moral outrage, like I was just saying. 
but that statistic, like when you're dealing with social science problems, there's just so many different variables, right, that, that account for why there is a certain kind of outcome. And, and that fact, the 2.5 times disparity there, that doesn't control for crime rates, which are disproportionate among the, the black community. Um, it, it's about 7% of the population, uh, which is black men, account for about half of the, the murders in the United States. Seven percent of seven percent representation of the total population represents fifty percent of murders. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, and it's actually even more. It's actually worse than that, actually, because it, it's it's about three percent of the population. Because it's not it's not all black men are committing murders, right? Seven percent are black men, but even a smaller subset of that seven percent are involved in, in criminal activity. So it's about three percent of the, the American population uh, accounts for about 40, 50% of the, the homicides. So that's a staggering statistic. Um, so once you control for, for crime, then um, some studies actually even show that white people are more likely to be killed by cops once you control for that variable, or, or at the very least, it, it's kind of equal. There's no, there doesn't appear to be some kind of uh, racial, uh, some kind of disparate racial treatment at play here that results in the disproportionate uh, shooting rates among uh, racial lines. Well, thank you for that, for the, the, the detailed information. Uh, I've heard it described in many ways, but yours was, was quite salient and clear. I, I think we'll move to our, our speed round where uh, I'll provide you um, two examples of individuals of philosophies and you give me which you prefer and why. Uh, we'll start easy and end, and end maybe a little bit harder. So uh, Malcolm or Martin? Uh, definitely Martin um, because, yeah, I, I just read his work throughout high school and his vision for colorblindness just always spoke to me and, and, and I wrote about him in my recent uh, article as well. So, yeah, I'm a fan of him. Free speech or free enterprise? Both. <laughs> you got to pick one. Uh, I think, yeah, free speech right now, especially with what's happening on Twitter, with censorship uh, issues, uh, I think we need to value free speech across the spectrum, not just conservatives, not just liberals, but just for everybody. I think free speech is, is important. So I don't know, you're a young man, I don't know if you're a student of history, I'm going to throw out one name that you, you may or may not be familiar with, but uh, Udham Singh or Gandhi? Do you know who Udham Singh is? No. So he was, he was a victim of a massacre that the British inflicted on the uh, Indian population around 1919. They killed about 600 unarmed people, and he carried that with him. And 21 years later, he traveled to England and killed an army officer. And it was a massive uh, issue and court case. And, you know, you could argue it contributed to where India eventually evolved to. So, I'm, you know, extremes, Udham or, or Gandhi, I, you know, in many respects, they're related. But I, I, unfair statement because it's, you know, I, I, I didn't know if you were a student of, of history to that degree, but... Uh, so it's, you know, so the freedom fighter, you know, the, the gross generalization would be the, 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 the violent freedom fighter or the, you know, the pacifist. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would choose the pacifist. It's always when dealing with, with violence, with 
hostility, with social unrest. The, the way is always to unite, to be nonviolent, um, and bring people together rather than, than fight back. That just never seems to work. Very good. Thank you. Wow, Rav. I mean, I think a lot of our viewers are listening to you and saying, wow, this 19-year-old, this he's so cogent and calm and reasonable and rational. Have you faced issues of discrimination in your own life? Like, how, how is it that there's one, there's one thing to look at data and come to logical conclusions, right? It's another thing to actually deal with this stuff on a very personal and emotional basis. Have you faced any kinds of pushback simply based on any immutable characteristics that you have? Uh, yes, uh, throughout uh, elementary school and I think a couple of incidents in middle school, um, I did face problems of, of racism and xenophobia. Um, and uh, I used to wear a, a turban because I'm of Sikh background. And so that became kind of a, a target for, for bullying, for excluding and ostracizing. And, and throughout elementary school, especially, it was, it was, a, it was a tough battle between, between trying to fit in um, and trying to be, you know, an, an active student and, and invest in my education, but also be socially uh, active and, and care about other people and, and make friendships. Um, it, it was definitely hard. Uh, many times I was bullied and landed up in the principal's office and trying to explain my situation like, oh, you know, he called me this, you know, he made fun of my, the way I look, you know, he said, I have, I have brown skin and I, you know, I look a certain way or, you know, you know, white kids uh, trying to mock a stereotypical Indian accent, that type of thing, or, or just, just a variety of, of other things that I, I had to deal with um, in terms of race, in terms of, of where I was from. Um, but uh, since, since middle school, since about ninth grade, I haven't really experienced uh, racism, um, at least explicitly. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I have, you know, many white friends and, and I get along with them and it's, it's all fine. And I've come to think about race uh, less and less uh, in my personal life, um, I guess, because of how, how much progress we've made on, on race relations, I think. Um, but now, now I'm sort of like experiencing this odd form of racism at times from from people like on the far left. Um, you know, there's a, a local uh, newspaper editor um, uh, in my city who uh, recently was tweeting at me and saying my my publications are alt right and that uh, are that alt I, alt right. Yeah, yeah, alt right. And uh, and then so I said. You know, you can read my writing. There's nothing ultrate about it, but but first of all, like it, it, it's just not coherent. It's it's not uh, plausible to claim that you know a person of color who has written about racism and, and ex experiencing that personally, as well as xenophobia, to be alt-right. You know, I said that to him, and then he said, "No, you know, you just you know, uh, people of color can be self-hating too. They can also uh, they can also be uh, alt-right. So, so yeah, your publications are perpetuating, you know, racial myths or, or, or whatever it is. So there's this odd form of hostility now from like white uh, left-wing, far left people who, who want racial justice, who want to end racism, but are just really um, uncomfortable with, with any idea that, any ideas that diverge from their yeah, narrow-minded yeah. beliefs. Yeah, why does a disagreement on, on like, for example, looking at objective data and coming to different conclusions, 
why does that mean you've got to be put in a box of, of hating yourself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, it's the, the, the apex of, uh, of identity politics, right? It's, it's when, when certain ideas and beliefs and philosophies get attached to, to whiteness, which is what we're seeing a lot um, in the U.S. right now with the idea that uh, objectivity, rationalism, capitalism, uh, individualism, the scientific method are all symbols of whiteness. That's like the popular idea now that's pushed by people like Robin DiAngelo. So, so when you have that kind of thing, it's, it's just really toxic and it groups people based on, on their skin color. And, you know, when in reality, things like individualism and hard work, they're not white concepts, right? They don't belong to anybody. Exactly. They belong, they belong to everybody rather. Yeah. Everybody. Exactly. But now we live in this color coded racially stratified uh, society now where, where these things where, where race is just emerging as, as a more salient and politically significant part of our lives when in reality we should be striving for the exact opposite. Wow. So maybe that's a good lead in to our final question. And as our viewers know, you know, when Nike and I first conceived the Invisible Men 30 years ago, we organized it as a way to provide advice from exceptional black men to provide advice to young people really of all races, but in particular black kids who were hearing a dominant narrative that said like, this country is hostile to you. You know, it's, it's an irredeemably racist nation. And that's definitely what a lot of black kids are hearing today. So Rav, even though you're only three years older um, than Daryl, what advice would you give for a kid who's, who's living in the world that you just described? Yeah, um, so I would say that your race doesn't limit you or confine you to a certain set of beliefs or ideas. Um, you as an individual have the freedom to, to learn from whichever kind of cultural pattern or whatever kind of ideas that you're interested in. You know, you can be interested in, in Middle Eastern culture. You can be interested in African cultures. You can be interested in various forms of European music or, or, or whatever it is, whatever um, whatever culturally interests you, you know, just because you're black or you're Indian or you're white doesn't mean you have to fit um, a certain kind of box culturally, right? Culture is fluid. You can learn things, you can learn new languages and, and, uh, and learn um, different ways of thinking. And then that's not contingent on race. That's contingent on, on what you like. And, and culture is the beautiful thing um, that we should all value here in Western societies where we live in, in multi-ethnic um, in, in multi-ethnic groups where you know you go to a college campus and you meet people from from diverse backgrounds and it's all kind of a melting pot where you can learn from each other and, and pick the best things in each, in each culture and, and shape your own worldview that that shouldn't be hijacked by what the media is telling you what you're hearing in popular culture in entertainment right? You as an individual have the agency to form your own opinions and and form your own um, philosophies and and views about various problems in the world. And then that that's on you. And that's the beautiful thing about being an individual who has agency and can make a change in this world. 
Rav, wise words, wise words. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of The Invisible Men. You're such a great example of someone who at a young age has developed some pretty sophisticated uh, uh, viewpoints of how this world works. And I'm really hopeful that your work continues, regardless of what your local editor says, keep on doing what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Rev, I lo loved your point on embracing various cultures and you have the ability to, to cross continents and worlds and time zones. Uh, that's great advice for Daryl. Definitely can't wait to see what you're doing in five years, maybe even in two years. You're, you're, uh, you're, on, a, you're on an exciting path to really benefit all societies. All right. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, Thanks. thank you for th thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. If you'd like to see all of the episodes, just go to www.invisible.men, where you'll get to hear amazing people like Rav Aurora, who's uh, visiting, visiting us from right outside of Vancouver. Rav, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.